Rick Carter is a production designer tasked with creating the worlds for many classic films, including Jurassic Park, the Back to the Future sequels, Castaway, AI, Artificial Intelligence, Avatar, Star Wars The Force Awakens, and more. He is still out on force today with new projects such as the film adaptation of Wicked and Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Rick joins me, Derek Davis, in a discussion that touches upon several of his films, but more importantly, a look into his wonderful insight that helped shape them. In another interview, you said that despite having been through a lot, you haven't fundamentally lost your innocence or your desire to wear your heart on your sleeve. And that is what cinema's life of exploration has provided. And, you know, I, like many others, also wear my heart on my sleeve. And I'm often told that it is a weakness. But looking at your life and its success, it clearly isn't. So, what would you say to those people that? criticize such a quality well it's an interesting uh, uh dynamic because i i had such a singularly fortunate experience thus far so it, even just the idea of wearing your heart on your sleeve right now you see that the paint on my hands yeah. um this is because i just was spending the day down uh, creating some art with a group of people for a show that i hope to to have open uh, down in the El Segundo Museum of Art in uh, May. And, you know, getting your hands in there when you're painting, and, and I'm very organic, you can see even from the things behind, that <clears throat> I, my personal art form is painting, uh, and it's people, it's just faces, it's not backgrounds or worlds. So <clears throat> I have always, held on to that as a process that is personal to me. Um, it also reflects my right eye, which is my nearsighted eye, whereas my left eye is my farsighted eye, and they don't look together. So I have a natural kind of uh, gap in my perception, uh, you know, which is why I even think in terms of minding the gap, which is in between these two types of perceptions. Uh, I am getting to your question because where is your heart in relationship to what you see, who you are, and then how you present yourself in the world? I really didn't put my heart on my sleeve entirely because I had my part of my heart in my personal painting that I was just doing. So I had a, I had a place, you know, it's like the Beatles when they say there's a place where you can go, you know, and since I grew up with them, and particularly uh, influenced by John Lennon, I maintain the idea of having a place to go because I know uh, being in Hollywood or being in a collaborative medium, medium, particularly you know, like filmmaking as it is, it can be very rough with you know on your on your egos because and on your heart because you may not get received for the things that you want. It's very competitive. Lots of people have very big egos. They come at you from all different angles. My experience was so fortunate because meeting 
Stephen early, relatively early. You know, I was, it was Goonies, so I was 34 in 1984. And, uh, and then I met him and I was working with Michael Riva, who was a wonderful production designer, just a little bit older than I was. And he took me under his wing in a kind of conceptual way. It was not like working with my father, it was like just working with an older brother. And we just, you know, we were two kids in a candy store and they didn't know what we were doing. And that's when I met Stephen and Kathy. And then they liked what we were doing. And then they liked the way I was presenting them the sets that when Michael wasn't there at a few times. And so they asked me to do the amazing stories. There is something that was like-minded with Stephen and with Kathy, um, particularly Stephen, of course, in that we understood and have over the years understood there's a deficit that we're working off of that creates the strength, if you can really accept it. Uh, the, 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 the idea that you actually don't know. If you, you know, when you read about Stephen, you'll hear him say, and he says far more now than he used to, that if it's not a project that he's afraid of, he doesn't know quite how to do it because it actually is to overcome the fear that he picks the project. He doesn't now pick things that are just easy for him to do. And as you get older, nothing gets really easier in that way. It just becomes your stick, you know, and then people are on your stick and they don't really like it anymore. So I guess what I'm getting at is I think we both connected on that level and where I could go with him and some of the people that, that he's surrounded himself with or attracted to Stan Winston or Dennis Muren or Michael Lantieri or John Bell, any of these very talented people, they don't know it all. In fact, none of the directors that I've worked with Bob Zemeckis and Jim Cameron, even Jim Cameron, he would think, well, he knows it all. He just tells everybody what to do. And he does up to a point. There's a lot he doesn't know. And he uses the process of making a movie to find out. I mean, that's, that's so he's got his heart and his sleeve too, because, you know, he can be, he can be very uh, you know, defensive and very almost like quaritch, but he can also be like Nate Terry, that's Jim. Whereas Stephen, you know, he's learned to be pretty comfortable in his skin, except for that he has these primal fears. And that's every one of his movies about is about dealing with a primal fear. So I think I picked up on that. And because I was a traveler who had been out in the world quite a bit, I was able to bring back things to both Stephen and Bob that they had not experienced necessarily. Like I was on a, you know, out in the world as a young man traveling around the world on a real identity quest. So traveling meant it wasn't just being a tourist it's like who am i here and so that's the way i absorb places so then when i started to create places it was from a real place so that's where my heart has always been in the people the dichotomy that i have between my two types of vision and that vulnerability then forces me to dig deeper into not only what i have to give but to rely on other people so then my, my ability and my need for collaboration is intrinsic in how I approach what I do. And I've, in this industry, been able to surround myself because of the projects and the directors with such good people. And those people, they, they get it too. And they, so then they start taking on whatever the thing is that they're doing and they own it. And they, they bring themselves to it, which then makes me much better at what I'm doing as a sort of coordinator of all of that, or the conductor. Um, 
but it's not as though I then play all those instruments that I'm conducting all that well. That's my long-winded way of not quite answering your question. <laughs> what I would say to somebody who's criticizing that as a weakness, what I would say is, yes, it is a weakness. But that's not the end of the story. The dot, dot, dot is that, that every single great filmmaker is working off of a weakness. Because if it was a strength, then they would have nothing to, to relate to the audience about. They would, they would, how would they know how to tell a story about any concern that then the person who's watching gets caught up in the drama as though something's at stake and they're vulnerable? Because that's, you're playing with the heart, not just the mind when you're watching a movie. If it's all mind, that's, that's a tough one. You know, you, you have to find something that engages the emotion because that's where that kind of gap between an audience and what's on the screen. You know, if you think about where is a movie you are playing, is it on the screen or is it in someone's head or somewhere in between or all three? And that kind of an idea is what I've been able to explore and was given the permission with Stephen and then Bob Zemeckis who is a like-minded person. So the two of them, for me, I'm always like the, the middle brother. You know, I'm, I'm younger than Steven and older than Bob. And that allowed me a lot of freedom to develop. So this weakness was not always used against me because I was screwing up whatever I might screw up, which I did numerous times. So, but they never like then beat me up over it. So I got to build up for 20 years, you know, from age 30, five from Goonies to basically 55 before I even went out from them into, you know, Avatar with, with Jim and that kind of thing, because that's, that's a different game when you have to go from place to place, person to person, approval, you know, approval, this, that, and you're never going to be a person for all directors, all seasons, all concepts, all audiences. So that weakness that you're talking about is ultimately the thing that can become the strength. I'm not saying it always is, but so the only thing I would say is be careful uh, if you really only perceive strengths because you can run out of those and find that you then have no, no, uh, what's the word, no training for dealing with the fact that you're not in your comfort zone. And particularly if you're out there in front with it as a director or anything like that, because the, the audience is, you know, they, they, they get used to you real quickly. And that's why you, know, you can have one or two hits or whatever. But if you want to last for a few decades, you have to reinvent yourself each time. And that's what people are doing, at least people I've worked with. You know, and I, I really do relate to that. Like even I actually wrote like my own novel, you know, and I really challenged myself with like things that I'm uncomfortable with like you know certain emotions like kind of darker emotions and you know loss that I've had you know kind of challenge that and kind of see like you know what is the essence of like why you feel this way like why can't you get over you know someone that you've lost in your life and what good does it do for you to mourn over you know a person when it ends up just you know hurting yourself and people that are still around you um so I challenged that kind of stuff, um, like in my book. But anyway, I mean, that's that's how I related, you know, to what you said and to how you feel about it. Because like you do have to challenge yourself because 
the story has to have that kind of personal growth to it. Um, so, I mean, not, not all do, but I think if you, I mean, and sometimes it's the things that eat at you that you can't get over that are the things that become the baseline of why you're even doing it, the purposefulness that you have with it. I mean, it, it's a delicate balance when, you're, when your art can become a source of your frustration to, to the extent that it keeps you from enjoying your life in the present tense with whatever, you know, whatever your situation is, whatever those alive relationships are. But, but grieving takes on many, many dimensions and it, it's not fooled by your mind and it's not even fooled by, I mean, even your heart can't really rush the process. Sometimes an insight can, can offer up an avenue of how to look at it so that when you're, when you're triggering certain emotions that you say, well, I know where these go and, and it's not that good for me to stay there. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, actually listen to this voice and not do that. But as I said with Stephen, fear motivates him. So, I mean, basically I wrote it to him the other day and I and it was just about taking any doubts and use them in, using them as fuel. And he said, you know, I, I, I absolutely agree that that's, you know, I mean, he, we, we talk philosophically sometimes, but it's also based on emotions about things that you are not resolved with, but can you use them in a way that, that and that can you know yourself enough so that you know what makes you function better than that which doesn't? Yeah. You know? And yeah. so each person's individual in that way. So I can't really tell you yeah, it's good or bad, but I, I hear that it's a real uh, it's a real place. And then that's the reason for um, why you would, you know, be interested in certain things and then maybe even fixate on certain things. So I mean, just as a mirror back. The question really probably for you, not that you have to answer that in this conversation, but would be, why are you so interested in Jurassic Park or dinosaurs? I see the one even behind you and you know, in your head. What do you think they represent to you? Because for instance, I'm not a dinosaur nut. I mean, in the sense that I don't obsess, I never did, but I certainly appreciate them. And, I'm, and actually I'm the one who came up with the, the line that Jeff Goldblum says that, that Ellie has the topper, but, but which was, you know, thinking about Jurassic Park in a big context, I was thinking, okay, well, God created dinosaurs, then God destroyed dinosaurs, right? Then God creates man, man creates dinosaurs, then dinosaurs maybe challenge man and destroy man. And of course, and then, you know, and then Laura Dern said, and, you know, women inherit the earth. They're like nothing wrong with that equation. So, so she pulled it out. In, but the whole setup was was how profound is this story? Because it's dealing with such a big, you know, like us as the dominant species challenged by another. And mm -hmm. by the way, all those others that are being created are all female. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. which it's hard to just sort of look at a T Rex and think female and raptor and female but it's right there it's, and, and it courses through and the whole way that life finds a way is all based upon you know the dna being female but then amphibian dna being laced in there and that doesn't it's asexual so that is, allows them and life to find a way so it, it's it's interesting 
philosophical uh, exploration that these movies get into. And of course, then there's all the technical things you have to do to, you know, and then the CG, my God, you know, to, to invent that and make that actually work. And then let's say for Phil to, Phil Tippett to, you know, have to see his whole way of doing things become extinct, except that you see, what he then learned was that what he was doing was not the, the was not the modality or the process. He because he was the guy who was the raptors and the T-Rex. He was the one who this is how they would behave. This is what they would think about. You know, so we, I mean, it was actually my idea that had the, the the idea of you know could a raptor perceive opening a door, and then what a raptor could not perceive would be a mirror. So a reflection, you know, in that kitchen scene, he, the raptor would think that's where she is, which, you know, so we were all in a dance as to what would be the consciousness of the dinosaurs from their world now transported into our world. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. I mean, you have to make it be more than just about, oh, there's a cool dinosaur on the screen, you know, like it's not just the there it is factor it's like what what is the motivations or like what what makes them real for the audience right um i think you guys did an amazing job for that and not to like personify them not to make them be you know like a character but an actual animal with its own instincts you know that's what i love about you know the original films especially is that they really focused on that um but of course like you said to you know reinvent you know the sequels they have to change it up a bit and maybe go in the the stranger directions i think they've had to in order to you know uh address what's the net what are the next implications that's where colin has taken it and 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 i um i mean he was he was such a fan of the first ones and i was there when he first came in and and, and it was it was very inspiring to see him take on what had been and then try to bring it into a next a next level you know as a younger person do um so you know as you get older it's 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 good to have younger people pick up on what you're doing even if they don't do it the way you would do it because usually to some degree we run our course with it a little bit and, and whatever we would do with it might really just be another retread of the same levels you might not know it but I think younger people would pick up on it. Okay, I, I get where this has to go. Whereas I think Jurassic World, for instance, I don't think people really know where they, it's going to go. It's quite where it'll go, you know. And, and I have some awareness of it. And I have a you know a protege who was the designer of it. So I I it's been fun for me to see it move on beyond me, and and then see it still have some vibrancy in the culture. Yeah, I mean, it's tapped into a whole new audience, too. Like, people that had never even seen Jurassic Park before, that was their first, you know, Jurassic World was. and But to at least still have, you know, your DNA, so to put it, in the new movies, you know, it's still really, really great. And I love that you were still a visual consultant for Jurassic World, because it it definitely did still have, you know, the the feelings and the remnants and even the literal remnants of like the old visitor center, for example, just to see that again. I got to be there to, to help work that out. You know, in fact, I scouted it, you know, I mean, scouted the location and all that kind of stuff. And then I was able to hand it off to 
Ed Vero, who I'd worked with, of course, uh, back to the future. In fact, I got him into the union as an art director and we, we go way back. So, uh, and then Kevin Jenkins, who's doing the, the, the newest Jurassic World, um, uh, was the co-designer on the last Star Wars. So there's been a kind of a, of a handoff, you know, like a generational handoff that I've been trying to be a part of, you know, be as graceful as I can and as helpful as I can. Um, and also because that way, maybe there's some way for some of it to live on. It's a very specific epoch of films, I think, as it turns out. And you don't know it when you're in it, but you, I can pretty much see it now. I mean, from from the Back to the Future through to where we are now, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, through the, the Star Wars, the ones that we did, you know, with the Force and all that to Jurassic World and maybe Avatar 2 and 3, that, that's kind of a, a type of movie that has a, it, it's very much from my perspective, something that's come out of the late 1960s in, in questing for a transcendental experience. And so the, the, the journeys that you go on, and most of the movies I've been on are journeys where you really travel somewhere. And then you, you reach kind of an epiphany and then there's a kind of catharsis and it, it kind of takes you back to where you started, though not always fully resolved, but enough so that there's a kind of a purposefulness that I think this generation all the way through, you know, not, you know Zemeckis and Cameron and even JJ a little bit, or to a great extent actually, um, have tried to make movies along those lines. Whereas there's plenty of movies now that are moving in other directions beyond that, you know, where you don't have quite the same need or desire to 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 identify the, the kind of catharsis that you might get from having, you know, something revealed to you through the movie. Um, and it, it hopefully impacts you personally. It's a different language. I mean, each generation has its own, you know, language. So that's the way that's you don't really want to repeat what came before so because unless people connect to it right i mean that's when there's a new audience that's kind of merging in so yeah it kind of has to go along with it kind of like how films like in the 50s had a very different feel and very different messages you know for that audience you know and obviously they could still be enjoyed today but it's like it still just had a very different uh, message, if you will. Or the 60s, you know, and then the late 60s into the early 70s and all those slices of life kinds of movies and, and how at the time they were like, wow, that's so cool. It's not so Hollywood and resolved and three-act structure and all that stuff. And now a lot of them you just look at and go, yeah, but so what? What happened? You know, yeah. and some of them hold up, you know, and some, but, and I started with kind of the, you know, Hal Ashby movies because I was coming from sort of being a hippie and I I I find it fascinating to, to kind of see what is it that people are they gravitate towards where they just instinctively go well that's not just that it's cool being cool as the word that means that's not just interesting that's provocative and I like that idea of that setup mm -hmm. you know particularly if you put it in that person's hands and you know, uh, and you hear, and you can hear a lot of grumbling, you know, like from our generation, kind of like, you know, like, why don't they like that? You know, that kind of thing, you know, and it's because it's old. Mm. You know, I mean, Billy Wilder didn't get to make a movie the last 15 years of his life. I mean, just because times had changed. Yeah. And you think, and you look back on some of the movies he made, you go, 
wow, those really hold up. I mean, those are some, I mean, he's got eight or 10 movies that actually just really hold up. You know, and, and I'm not saying for every young person, but I'm just saying they're not, they're, it's what, when you get older, you don't want to have happen. When you were around 20, you traveled around the world for a whole year by yourself. And like, what inspired that massive journey, especially at such a young age? And like, and how did it feel for you after you went through it? At the time, it was, uh, you know, like going into exile because it was you know, the Vietnam War was happening. I was a conscientious objector. I'd been up at Berkeley um, and I really felt I couldn't access who I was. I, I just couldn't. It was I was just socially determined. That's all I could say. It was not it's not unlike a lot of people today feel where, you know, the, the labels are so intense whatever the color of your skin, uh, your sex, anything that like, who are you? You know, and are you really just the sum of that? That's it. And that was happening not only in the main culture, but then the counterculture. And so it was like, where do you go? And especially up at Berkeley, it was so intense with the rioting and everything that I, looking back on it, I just think I, I couldn't handle it. And then I, I got the opportunity with a high uh, draft number from, the, from a bingo uh, draft lottery that they had in 1969. So I didn't, it didn't look like I would get uh, drafted. Uh, and I, was, I was, had been a student, so I dropped out of college and I had some money that my parents had given me. Um, in those days, it was like, they literally said, here's, we spent $3,000 on you last year. And here's $3,000, you can do what you want with it. And, so I dropped out of college and I've turned that $3,000 into, well, certainly 3 million. I mean, by now, but I mean, you know, in terms of its impact on my life, the money I've made because of having done that, you know, the vistas that opened up the, you know, just even reaching the, uh, going on a journey. I know what it is to go on a journey and reach the end and then come home. And then, and I brought that whole sensibility into every, movie I've worked on and then of all crazy things if you if you think about the movies that I've worked on they're all journeys and, and I didn't pick them I didn't write them you know you you picked you saw the only one I kind of wrote at all a version of which was just um you you know you start somewhere you go on a journey and where you are determines the drama that unfolds and then there's often guides and that come along in one way or another. And many of them are so classical, you know, like certainly Avatar and Polar Express and Star Wars and, uh, I mean, BFG. I mean, there's so many that are so classical within the context of The Wizard of Oz, which is what I grew up with. So I'm essentially, you know, Dorothy. And, and, and I was a Dorothy in my mind. And you know, you, you, when you're 20 years old, you can't walk around very easily and go, well, I'm Dorothy. You know, I mean, that has a lot of connotations and lots of levels, but that was all I'm trying to get at is I'm a traveler. I, I, and I learned from being away and I went all around the world and I met lots of people. I didn't take a camera, so I bought like three or four photos of the whole thing. But I continued to travel on my own at various times in my life and then through my work. 
And that's been the fundamental thing that I draw upon in order to design movies. Because I don't, I'm not a designer naturally, like, a, you know, architecturally, here's, here's, you know, an assignment. Think about it this way, like an architecture, an architecture, an architect would. I think about it, where am I? What's the spirit of the place I'm in? What am I trying to experience here? What am I experiencing here? What's the drama? And from there, and particularly in the conversation with the director, find out what, what I think metaphorically these places mean. And then that, and that's all based upon the travels because I didn't know who I was. So every place I went mattered to me because it was a revelation who I met, how I felt, did I, did I stay, did I go, did I move on? And so that was a, a fundamental experience that I had. That, but then of course I could bring that to the table with these directors who had really always just, particularly Stephen and Bob, you know, from the time at early age, they knew what they wanted to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do or who I was. They, they knew, so they were into it, but then they missed that whole discovery part. So I think that's why they liked me being around. In fact, the latest movie that I just did last year with Stephen, The Fablemans, is about his growing up. So that's where we, we really parallel. I'm younger, but still I know that world bit and then and then he, what he was doing with his art why he was doing it you know wh what led him to be a filmmaker what what are the things and when you see that movie it might make you feel a little more like oh i get it uh this these films come from somewhere they're not they're not just like an arbitrary oh i like war movies or oh i like this they they, they come from somewhere and that's why the directors bring themselves to it if you see jim cameron's movies and you realize that he's he can be Nay Terry and um, Navi and Awa, and he can be Quaritch and all that firepower. He loves both of those things, and they are at war, right? And yeah. but that's why the movies are so strong because he invests in both sides. He doesn't like he doesn't show his hand ahead of time and go, "Well, I'll make the, these bad guys," but really, you know, you don't have to regard them because mm. they know they're bad because he loves the bad side just as much as he loves the other <laughs> so now the movies are he's working it out you know but he's also willing in real life to go work it out at the bottom of the real ocean and get real messages from real places real things he sees and bring it back which is how he comes up with the bioluminescent level mm. you know the, what he calls phantasmagoric it's like as seen in a dream state he knows i've never seen that You've never seen that, but just he brings it to us, right? And in 3D, you know, not even a 3D that comes out at you, but an immersive 3D, because he, he, he's, he's, he calculates, but he also calculates in order to try to um, have other people see what he sees or feel what he feels. And that's what they all do. That's what all the, the great directors are doing. Yeah. No, and that totally makes sense i mean that's what leaves a lasting impact that's the difference between a movie that stays with you and a movie that you forget about after you see it even if you had a good time with it um you know so i mean that's those are the kind of stories that resonate with me you know movies like for me one of really underrated spielberg film for me is artificial intelligence and that movie just oh god it just like 
tears me up. Well, that's that's probably because you love your mother or you loved your mother. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's what that's about. And so that's true for Stanley and it's true for Stephen. Yeah. Right? And they're doing a dance. I mean, Stephen's taking on from Stanley and bringing his heart to it. And when you see the Fablemans, you'll understand even more. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> and, and, uh, and we share that. We shared that throughout. So the fourth act to me is like, that was Stanley's. That's not Stephen. Stephen would never go to a fourth act. But the fourth act, you have to go to because that's the legacy. And the legacy is beyond the here and now, which is the three-act structure. Mm-hmm. And then Stanley got, he's the only director I know of who got to direct the movie after he was dead. <laughs> pretty much right yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dead, that's the fourth act and then steven's getting all the stuff from all the critics for having put a fourth act in there when the fourth act is the very point of the movie because it's a fourth act point of view for the whole movie which is stanley's i mean let's just say you're an artist and you want to live on and you plant a seed with this kid and he ends up doing it so that after you're gone it gets fulfilled Nobody picks up on that. They just don't, they'll, they, maybe they'll graduate, but no one says Stanley Kubrick must have, what a relationship he must have had with his mother. Mm, I see what you're saying, yeah. Uh, look at George Lucas. What kind of relationship did he have with his father? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and only the people that, you know, JJ and Ryan, and, you know, they, they get that, you know, they, 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 it's, it's about the trouble with the father. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, otherwise, you've got a good uncle, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi, but the father is like, fuck. Excuse my language. But I mean, so, but the <laughs> yeah. mother, if it's, if it's focused on, is there as the support. So then that's way, that way you can feel where the love flows in the movies. And I, I agree with you about AI. I mean, I know it's unwieldy, but it gets into so many levels that are profound at a philosophical point of view to to feel i mean the the amount that that movie is ahead of what we are able to mostly perceive is is quite phenomenal to me because it, it first of all the concept is pre-digital so the future is not it's not about digital it's about the future it's about artificial intelligence it's about how right it's about how how does how does this thing that we've created this in this verb of intelligence start to have its own life form meaning it will protect itself at all costs and if in 2001 the problem is that they can't afford to be wrong ever because mm. that's essentially a problem but that's a four-act structure in that movie of course yeah right yeah so you know, <laughs> and, and i mean you know was it to infinity and beyond? That's the last chapter, you know, the Buzz Lightyear thing we call it now, but that's, that's what's in that movie. And the point I'm making is that that fourth act describes almost by definition, I think in a Kubrickian way, what it is to see what we do here perceived in one more dimension in time, which is the legacy time. So when little David, is it the, the bottom of the water, you know, the ocean, the Ferris wheel, wishing with the blue fairy to become real for 2,000 years? <laughs> you know, it's like, what? 
Yeah. But then you go into that and you find a whole dimension as to how that artificial intelligence is regarded 2,000 years in the future as special. Why? Because that artificial intelligence had direct contact with the creator, the creators. And who are the creators? Us. And what we did is, you know, we did things like, well, I mean, Chris Baker was the illustrator who worked with Stanley, who had so much influence and was so wonderful in that movie. But it's like John Bell in, in you know, Jurassic or, or uh, Back to the Future. I mean, just someone who really contributed their heart and their soul and so much to it. But his ability to work with Stanley to conceive how that whole last act with those, you know, everybody thought, well, what are they? They're, they're like, you know, aliens or whatever. And that was a tough one. Like, how do you how do you know how that's supposed to look? But anyway, they they were supposed to be robotic. The idea was how do you show what they're perceiving in David? So what we came up with was they don't wear their emotions on the inside. They wear them on the outside, which is what you see. That way you can visualize that they understand what his journey has been. Yeah, that's brilliant. There's, there's a lot of things <laughs> going on in there. I'm not saying they all work, but we're into such rarefied, you know, there's not only no gravity, there's no air, there's nothing. So you're trying to still construct the, the world and to get to the emotion with the mother having the perfect day so that the little robot can actually go to sleep and dream. Yeah. And real, real because he can dream. See, if an artificial intelligence achieves dreaming, then they're as real as we are. And until they, until they, until they do so, they can never be as real because it will be a different form of real, but it will never be the one that they were created from. I see, yeah. Because they are our dream. Mm -hmm. They are our extension. And they, they can live maybe beyond when we can yeah. So it's a, that's a tripped out movie. Yeah. That really <laughs> you know, yeah. and if you don't get it, you're watching the last act going, why is all this happening? Why couldn't we just end at the bottom of the ocean and say the, the, the little kid was a robot, I didn't care anyway. So leave him there for all I care. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm honestly glad it, it didn't end right there at the bottom because, you know, at the bottom of the ocean, because it just, it needed that extra step into that direction into like you know that future like especially when Jude Law has that line like you know all that will be left will be us as in that's how I always knew they were androids I knew they weren't aliens and I was always confused of like how did how did you think they were aliens like they literally say in the movie that line well, because the visuals <laughs> because the visuals sometimes are stronger than whatever is said so for instance give you an example on how that can work Think about Jurassic Park. The entire narrative tells you it's a bad idea. But you still, here we are, five more movies in and theme parks and a million other things and merchandising galore. So even though the narrative literally says, I, I, this is a bad idea, I can't approve this. And Hammond even in the first movie agrees. You would think the narrative that they tell you would win out if they tell you, but it doesn't. The, the experience is is more uh, 
more than and even just because it gets your heart going especially in Jurassic Park they definitely don't learn from their mistakes over and over again but that's just because you know people can be greedy or people can just be too caught up in the the wonder and the awe and that's what drives them you know they'll take the risk they don't care they just want to make it happen you know even if it's not for like monetary value they just they're just so want to see it be real um so that's and i i I love that that's how it is because it feels realistic that people keep not learning because that's how real life can be very often pretty amazing amazing. (laughs) and yeah i don't i don't know what to make of that at all (laughs) right i know it's like i wish you could i think i used to have a stronger opinion about you know uh what we can learn and what we can't we're, we're, we're very wired um in in certain ways you know our curiosities are just astoundingly powerful yeah you know and so that whole thing that even that, that uh, malcolm says of you know just because you can do it doesn't mean you should but very hard if you can to stop yourself or to stop someone else you know because that comes across as on a whole other level is something that how do you know <laughs> you know what I mean? yeah so but, it, but it's fun to play in that that's it's a it's a field to play in and that's what we've been doing with all these movies yeah and you know, very well of, i might add <laughs> oh, thank you thank you you know but it's just but it's really the genius of the storytellers i mean spielberg and zemeckis and cameron and jj abrams are such such wonderful storytellers that 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 my helping them go places and be places has been a real joy. I mean, that thick is obviously has got me high and, and, and while I've had the energy to jump all around, it's been great. It's, it's a little different now. I, I don't feel quite the same, um, you know, just jumping around and continuing. I, I have a lot of the curiosities, a lot of ambitions, but they don't, they don't quite go to the same place, if that makes sense. And Stephen just—it was—it was amazing. Now, in retrospect, to have him come in and he had been in a traffic on, on Ventura Freeway, you know, uh, coming to work, uh, and he—he—he um, he, he came in one day so excited. He said, "Oh, I know how we can introduce the T-Rex now." And you know, and he had been next to a car that had a boom, deep bass going, and it shook the the cup holder he had. The, the coffee in his cup, and he went, "Oh, that's how we should do it." So that, that's how that happened. You know, the boom, boom, and we didn't know that the, the dinosaurs could actually be created with the dinosaur, I mean, with the with the CG. So there's a lot of bravura, a lot of like, uh, you know, Barnum and Bailey, like here it comes, but we don't really know what's going to be delivered. Luckily, it did, but he was so excited because it was so like we've been holding back, holding back, and then when it comes. It, it just really came in and it was amazing to experience that with audiences that first few weeks because people hadn't seen anything like it. Even Bob Zemeckis was just, wow. It was like, uh, he had no idea. He'd worked a lot in, you know, CG and, you know, Death Becomes Her and, you know, that, but nothing like that, what that opened up. So it was very exciting to, to have that showmanship that Stephen put in based upon not knowing. And I was there also in the meeting when Dennis Murin and Spaz and uh, the main guys who'd worked on the CG. And then 
to show Stephen the skeleton display running, you know, and then Stephen literally, it was, it was as simple as like, how much to put skin on that? Half a million dollars. Okay, let's do it. And that was coming from him and Kathy, but him, him in particular. So it was like, it was pretty amazing to be in on that meeting. And then of course, the first screening of that, I was there when we saw it for the first time, you know, like the, the T-Rex kind of lumbering, you know, it was fantastic. I mean, and of course that led to, you know, Phil, you know, seeing his whole world go extinct, you know, I know. which was <laughs> Poor guy. not funny at all. No. You know? I mean, it really, it, those stories are real. Nobody could get in touch with them for 10 days. I don't blame them. <laughs> no, I know. It's like if you build this level, but, but then again, that's where Dennis and ILM, but particularly Dennis, you know, he knew he needed not just a bunch of nerds, creating a dinosaur, he needed Phil to be the raptors, to be the, 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 the characters, you know, even if they're going to be animals. I mean, Phil would like literally, you know, in meetings, he'd, 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 he'd get kind of nervous, you know, and that kind of fidgety, like listening to us talk about, well, you know, Grant and Ellie, they would do this and Malcolm would do this and then the dinosaurs would do this. And he, he'd just get kind of like a little pissy because he, you know, he'd go, he just kind of at certain points go, well, well, the raptor would do. And then he would like to jump up on a chair and do something, you know, it's like to, to keep, keep us like, be aware that you're talking about dinosaurs, you know, and like, I'm going to, I'm the, the, not just the advocate, I'm going to show you what they're going to do. And when you see those, those things, in, you know, when he just had that long stick with the head of a T-Rex showing where it goes in that final shot. Yeah. Then, and then Michael Andrea, one take, had to just go, you know, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> there goes the skeleton display, right? Yeah. And that all worked. And, and even that, even the way that movie was made, we were on the main road. It was only, the skeletal display was only designed, the whole visitor center was designed for a raptor attack, you know? And so when Stephen said I the, the T-Rex is the hero she's got to come back and and we'd already shot in Hawaii so I thought like a really literal art director at that point because I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other you know I was thinking like well how's the T-Rex get in the building we've already set up like we know what it, you know and and that's I mean but what I said was how does the T-Rex get in and then Stephen said yeah he he just he just went he went well grant the kids are backing up the raptor's coming this is happening here and then the raptor jumps and then the t-rex comes in from the top of the frame I top, said, of oh, the frame. top of the frame <laughs> yeah. you know it's like it was like one of those stories that i, I go i love oh, it yeah, well of course yeah <laughs> he's so he's so smart that way yeah he's like who, who cares it's coming in through the frame don't need well, explanation there was another <laughs> earlier iteration when he was storyboarding because when he storyboards you know, which is not all the time at all, but in those days he was doing more. And it's like, he's playing the movie kind of one frame per minute, as opposed to 24 frames per second. So he's just drawing really simple things, this, and then, then this, and then I'll look and say, well, what about maybe this could happen? Oh yeah, oh, yeah, that could happen. So he had a T-Rex with a person, you know, here's the T-Rex. And I remember just laughing. I mean, he was just constructing a sequence. It was like, and I went, well, now what? Because how are you going to get that person out of this situation? And he said, well, I don't know. 
Because if I knew, then the audience would know that I already know. So at the time, that was, I think about, that was, that was like one of the kids, you know, or maybe Grant and the T-Rex on the main road. But then, you know, he liked that so much. He said, well, I know. What if it's the lawyer? And then he can have a shot, right? Because he can kill the lawyer. And they said, and even better, he can be, he can run into an outhouse and we'll get him on the toilet. <laughs> I love it. But it's just that, that kind of, that's how his brain works. And Bob's that way. It's like the big bang theory personified, you know, as to, you know, you say something and he, he kind of looks and goes, well, what I thought you were going to say is, and then he comes up with this whole thing that can go right in the movie. And then you say, well, were you thinking about that before I started talking? I was, no, 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 just as you were talking. Nice. I mean, like Doc Brown, right? It's just like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it is very Doc Brown. <laughs> yeah. Very, very, um, very excitable. And then, and then pinpoint it right into the movie because they have, they both have this, this brain that not only emotionally works for cinema, but it knows how to create cause and effect. And that when they have a cause, they know how to have the affect reverberate, not not just like oh this then that happens or this happens. The it's implications. Like, <laughs> the implications. Yeah. Some huge cause and effect. And once I got onto that level, I went, oh, that's what's going on. I, I that was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, no, I love that, especially when it comes almost like a callback type scenario. Maybe not exactly callback, but, you know, everything does kind of reverberate from decisions that characters make or things that happen to the characters, you know, kind of put them in more trouble later kind of thing. I love love doing that to characters. It's so fun. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I love that they're they're like that. That's amazing. I mean, particularly in that era, that 20 years, it was just, I mean, because they were just so in their element and the world was their oyster i mean you know yeah. it was just it was just like no one was touching it i mean not not that that was about being competitive it was just more whatever they did turned to gold and it was pretty neat to be around that yeah they were able to play in the toy box and they were allowed to do whatever they wanted with their toys the only thing that, that bob ever got turned down well you know there's a story you probably heard it where Back to the Future 2 was just one movie. 2 and 3 was one movie. Everything from going into the West, it was all in one movie. So when I first heard that from Bob and Bob, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale, it was like getting my brain fried. This was going to be my first movie with them. I'd done amazing stories, but, but it felt so good, right, to, to imagine. But then, wow. And so when we, they put the budget together, the budget was... 70 million dollars they went to sid scheinberg and sid said there's no fucking way i'm going to spend 70 million dollars on a sequel we spent 35 on the first one even with the reshoots and sequels don't make more so what what was bob zemeckis's response well then how about two for 90. <laughs> and that's what we did yeah no worries that's, that's I mean, jeffrey katzenberg on roger rabbit told bob the, the, the budget was at $39 million for, for, for Roger Rabbit. And he said, I don't want to see a four in front of that budget. Bob said, don't worry, you won't. And it went to 51. <laughs> well, he didn't lie. <laughs> no, we, we, he did on Gump. Oh. 
Oh, oh he no. actually, yeah, they actually like, you know, in order to get that made, they had to do a lot. You know, I mean, you know about the times when Tom and Bob had to give money back in order for us to go to Monument Valley and all those runs. But there were a lot of steps where in order to get that made, they had to like pretend it was going to cost less. <laughs> you couldn't read that script for how big it was. Mm. It just didn't read big, mm -hmm. but it was. And we all, those of us who were on it, especially with Bob, knew it. Um, and, you know, but we believed in it. It was like, you, it was a consciousness there, like a gump, a gumpy in consciousness. You know, it's like the, the, the consciousness is, there's, there's, there's a MacGuffin in that movie, which is that, that Forrest Gump is stupid. Hmm. You know, he even says, you know, I may be, you know, I'm not, you know, not a smart man, but I know what love is. And of course, there's even a, a chart that, that the teacher shows Sally Field, his mother. Says, you're, you're, you know, here's normal and your son's right here. But first of all, you, they wouldn't have made a chart just for him, right? <laughs> I mean, but yeah. we did because we wanted to show you the point was that he was here. The idea is that he's not smart. Yeah. But he never does anything stupid. Exactly. Because it follows his heart. So it goes back to what you're what we were talking about in the beginning. Is the weakness is the strength. You know, and that's why you can he can recognize what needs to be done at any given moment because he follows his heart. And stupid is as stupid does. You know, and there it, and, is. Uh, there it is. So, and, and reality will judge that. Yeah. You know, it'll make it very clear. You know, you know, so you, you, reality gets to determine what's stupid. Yeah. Based upon what you do. And usually, you're, if you're at the wrong end of reality, then that was stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can fight the good fight all you want, but if it happens over and over again, then maybe you need to change course. Yeah, exactly. That's when you got to change it up for sure yeah so. i just love everything you've worked on that's why i had to bring up ai you know and no, I, I appreciate that because i actually the thing that i was doing to create this hand thing is, <laughs> yeah it's not because i'm trying I, I did work on wicked a little bit for a while but that's not what this is um no we, we're actually going through some of the things you know I, i've always thought about the movies i've gotten to work on with particularly Stephen and Bob and, and Jim, well, actually all of them, and even and Zach on, on um, Sucker Punches, there's a visual philosophy. And that comes across in the movies. They're they very earnest. They, these, these, they're really by people who, are, they're not shucking and jiving and just playing it for the audience because they think the audience needs X, Y, or Z. They're really playing out, and, and, and particularly with Bob, uh, well, actually, all of them, but you can, I mean, I could, you could just, where they were in their lives is right what you're looking at. It's pretty astounding, actually, the, the code, if you know the code of what's going on, and then you see what projects within that period they picked, where it went. Um, I, I think it's real art. I really do. I, 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 I know art can be interpreted a lot of different ways, but I think, um, I think Stephen kind of, unleashed something with George that is different than Marty and Francis and all the people. It's not it's totally different because they, they set up the kind of existential equation that, that 
that Stephen and George in particular wanted to follow. But both Stephen and George had this kind of pop sensibility and culture that they took seriously growing up. And they didn't, they didn't really grow up at first. And that's why Stephen was always, you know, said labeled as someone who wouldn't grow up. I, when we were on Goonies, I remember him saying to me, this was like when I was doing second unit with him. And he, and he, even then we got along and he, he said, they'll never take me seriously, the critics, the way they do, you know, Francis and Marty and Brenda Palma and because they just can't see it, you know, and eventually, of course, after Schindler's List, everybody said, well, oh God, he's, he's pretty grown up as well. But it's that balance between the innocence and innocence is not weak. And it's not naivete. It's just preserving something that of the wonder and the, the real interest in that which helps life find a way. And Bob is that way. And JJ is that way. And, and, and Jim Cameron too. I mean, they're really in it for the right reasons that they, that they sincerely want to communicate where they're coming from. And they're fortunate to not be stuck without a medium in which they can convey that because otherwise they would have all those ideas and know where to put them or be you know all constantly stopped and that's one of the things that's been so great for me is to be around their confidence their vulnerability their um what really makes them tick and then allow me to have access to my own but also to help them so that you know, when I've been working with them, I'm not on, it's, it's, it's their agenda, but I don't have a conflict with it. So it becomes my agenda. And if I look at the whole body of work, then it's like, I could never figure out what's my aesthetic, you know, in all these movies, but I can see it now. I, I understand there's a, there's a, a spiritual component. There's a humanist component. There's a certain colors. There's certain uh, ways of looking at, at things. And most of it goes back to what I experienced in the real world, both as a traveler and somebody who has a near side eye and a far side eye that don't come together. So let's say an avatar, I don't see 3D. Polar Express, I don't see 3D. BFG, I don't see 3D out here. But I have my own version of 3D. And it's, it's a third eye. It's right in here. And that third eye is where the avatar state is from. Because where else, you tell me where else it's from. Guy lies down in an MRI machine. They say he's uh, you know, going to transfer that consciousness into a nine-foot half Navi who's sitting there. And, he, and then he, he transfers and yellow, blue, red, eyes open. The guy gets up and runs. And the other guy can't run. Then the guy goes all the way go all the way to the hallelujah mountains in a trailer and you know these are big jumps if i if i were trying to sell you on the idea you'd say well how are you going to pull that off and the answer is you have to believe it you, you you just you can't just suspend your disbelief you have to make create an invitation to believe so you can take the jump you want to take the jump and there you are and it's timeless it can be anywhere and it's it's led to all these movies and it's led to you know hill valley in the future or the west in the past you can go to jurassic park 
It can go to a slave ship, defining the middle passage that every African-American in this country has in their in ancestor, ancestry had to experience, be on an island, you know, in the middle of the Pacific for no reason, nothing, he didn't do anything wrong. He just got caught in a uh, plane crash. And, you know, and, and then you're even with Claire, you know, with a, a maniac husband who everybody thinks is great. Like he's God, he's Indiana Jones and Han Solo. <laughs> What's wrong with him? Oh, like, I love that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's amazing to me that after 9/11, the, the amount of war movies, uh, War of the Worlds, Munich, Avatar, War Horse, Lincoln. I mean, even BFG a little bit, but certainly Star Wars. And then the second Star Wars, even the Vietnam War and the post. It's like every time I turn around since 9 11, I'm on a war movie and I'm a conscious objector to war. <laughs> yeah, so, like, oh, man. go figure. Yeah. So, these things, <laughs> these things all, they, 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 they mix up. And for me, they've created a concoction that uh, I could never have predicted. Uh, and I'm just glad I got to experience it. It definitely shows in all the work that you and your teams and the directors have put out. It's like it definitely speaks to people in a way that I feel like is very important and really stays with people and really kind of informs them not only of the people that made these stories, but even themselves in a way like they really take they put themselves in the movie because they're allowed that access that you guys create, you allow that kind of entry point into the story. You're not shutting out the audience. You're not trying to just, you know, blow things up for the sake of blowing things up. It's like, there's actually a reason for, there's a connective tissue, if you will. So I, I think that's why all of these movies speak to me the way they do. They're not just there to give us a good time, even though they do. The, the, the real key to that, and maybe I should leave you on this one, is um, John Lennon mm. and it's that line that has always stayed with me and, and it, I think it has to do with the, the way of breaking down those barriers it's that the you know that you know I am he as you are he as you are me and we are all together and if you can actually believe that and act on that it's amazing what comes out of it you know when you're not just territorial and then that invites in other people to partake and then just because you're also wanting to partake of them. Yeah. You know, oh, everybody's equal in that. As Lincoln would say, two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. <laughs> yeah. No, it's brilliant, of course. Tony <laughs> <Funny> Krishner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but still, yeah, brilliant. Yeah. But I'm glad we made this happen. Thank you very much again, Rick. It was great talking to you. Thank you. You too. Bye. I'd like to thank Rick Carter for spending his time looking back on his career and allowing us to get a glimpse into who he is. The work that Rick and his teams have put together over the years has undoubtedly helped shape many worlds in cinema that we are fortunate to visit again and again. If you'd like to learn more about the untold stories of Jurassic Park, please visit Jurassic Time, featuring John Hammond's memoir program, Rick Carter's illustrated audio drama, and much more. This 
has been Derek Davis. <laughs>